The Bob Murphy Show, episode 305. you gonna do get ready for another episode of the bob murphy show the podcast promoting free markets free minds and grateful souls it's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a christian and economist now here's your host bob murphy hey everybody welcome back to the bob murphy show This episode is going to be installment number two in my new mini-series, the Interdisciplinary Commentary on the Gospel Accounts of Jesus Christ. So in the previous episode, which happens to be bobmurphyshow.com slash 304, I set up the introduction to this series. If you want to go back and listen to that to get some of the structure of what's unfolding but in this one, I want to jump right in, and I am starting with the Gospel of John, right? So it goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John in the New Testament. I'm actually starting with John because, as I alluded to last episode, when I knew I wanted to do a series like this, but then, you know, on the margin, I kept saying, oh, well, I should study some more before I start talking to the public about the most important books ever written. And da, da, da. the thing that pushed me over the edge was, uh, an epiphany that occurred to me when I was reviewing my interaction with ChatGPT4, believe it or not. All right, and in the course of this episode, you'll understand what I mean when I say that. And so then, because I realized, okay, yes, this is exactly the kind of thing that I want to put into this interdisciplinary commentary series that I'm contemplating, uh, I realized, okay, I should start. So that's why I'm starting with the Gospel of John. Let me give you folks just some grounding, uh, and and maybe I'll come back and do more the next time I do this series and I continue in the Gospel of John. But for right now, let me just read. So this is coming from the Enduring Word Bible Commentary. Uh, the guy's name is David Guzik. All right, and so this is something my my cousin and I, when we do our Bible studies, often uh, check out what Guzik has to say about something. So he, he's more recent. All right, I don't, I don't know if he's still alive. I think he is. He, you know, whereas sometimes you rely on old school commentators. All right, so here's what Guzik has to say. I'll just read some of this. John, the fourth gospel. The gospel of John is the fourth section of what some call the fourfold gospel with four voices giving different perspectives on the life of Jesus of Nazareth. Christian writers as early as Oregon, who lived from 185 to 254, understand that there are not really four gospels, but there is one fourfold gospel. The gospel of John was probably the last of the four written and written in view of what the previous three had already said. This is one reason why John's account of the life of Jesus is in many ways different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There are significant events in the ministry of Jesus that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all include, yet John leaves out, such as Jesus' birth, his baptism, his temptation in the wilderness, confrontation with demons, 
his teaching in parables, the Last Supper, the agony in Gethsemane, and the ascension. Okay, so those things are all what many would think are pretty important deals. And then if you're going to write a book talking about Jesus to somebody, you might think that should be in there. And in fact, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all did include those events, yet John skips over them. Okay, then Guzik goes on to say, the first three Gospels center on Jesus' ministry in Galilee. John centers his Gospel on what Jesus said and did in Jerusalem. Each of the Gospels emphasizes a different origin of Jesus. So Matthew shows Jesus came from Abraham through David and demonstrates that he's the Messiah promised in the Old Testament. Mark shows that Jesus came from Nazareth, demonstrating that Jesus is a servant. Luke shows Jesus came from Adam, demonstrating that Jesus is the perfect man. So just to make sure I get that. And of course, we'll go over this, folks, when we cover these books in this mini-series, assuming I'm still alive and I'm still cranking these out. Um, but so Matthew and Luke have the genealogy of Jesus, but Matthew's traces it to, from Abraham forward. Because again, with his audience, like that's what's relevant to them. Whereas Luke is showing, you know, Jesus is the descendant, you know, going all the way back to the first man, Adam. Because given Luke's audience, that was the more relevant way to explain who the heck is this guy? What's his identity? Okay, and then finally, John shows Jesus came from heaven, demonstrating that Jesus is God. Okay, so again, you see the different, they're all, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all showing a different origin for Jesus, even though they're all true statements, of course, just emphasizing different aspects of who he is. And so Guzik is saying that John, as we'll see, when he wants to start out the book to say, where's Jesus coming from? He traces it all the way back, you know, to the beginning thus showing that not only is Jesus a Jew in the line of, you know, descended from Abraham, not only is he a servant from Nazareth, not only is he, you know, a man for all men because he comes from Adam, the first man, you know, before all descended from, but he's also showing, you know, his divine nature. Okay, Guza goes on. However, it is wrong to think that the Gospel of John completes the story of Jesus. John wrote that the story of Jesus is so big that it can never be completed. Okay, I'll uh, just get a few more bits in here. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke are known as the three synoptic Gospels. The word synoptic means see together. And the first three Gospels present the life of Jesus in pretty much the same format. They focus more on what Jesus taught and did, whereas John focuses more on who Jesus is. Okay, so I will stop reading from Guzik at that point. Let me also mention, before I forget, unless I say otherwise, whenever I read direct quotes from Scripture in this miniseries, the translation I'm going to be using is the New King James. And there's nothing theological really behind that decision, it's just... Like when I when I was a kid, you know, and I would hear the Bible read, I don't know if it was the you know, actual King James or the new King James, but it was at least one of those two. Like just the, the old-timey language is part of what just sounded 
gorgeous to me and like made it stand out and seem profound that, you know, was different from just the noise of everyday life. Like this is ancient wisdom that's been passed down. And how do you know that? Well, cause the language, you know, it's, you can still understand it, but it's, it's different. And so I, I want to retain that novelty, you know, to make it really stand out to you folks. And so I don't want it to be in colloquial everyday language, but yet you obviously have to understand what it's saying. And so to me, the new King James is the best um, spot in that trade-off of, you know, intelligibility, but also profundity, let's say. Okay, so that's why I'm using the new King James. There's nothing more, there's nothing deeper than that. Okay, so what I think I will do here is read just the first five verses, and that's all we're going to tackle in this session, because as we'll see, there's a lot to be said here. And let me emphasize again, just in case you're jumping into this series and you didn't go listen to the introduction, but why don't I go ahead and say it again? For one thing, it requires a certain degree of intrepidity to comment on what I believe is the inspired Word of God, okay? So... I'm trying to approach this task with all due humility, um, but also partly because I'm in recognition of the fact that I'm not a trained theologian, that my commentary is going to heavily rely on my knowledge of certain fields, uh, you know, in secular academics, let's say, intellectual inquiry. And the point of that is not to sort of, you know, demystify or whatever you want to say about it, the Christian faith. No, on the contrary, I'm trying to show that this is true, this is real, and that's why, you know, my faith doesn't fear anything from science or logic or mathematics or whatever. As we'll see, I believe it's the other way around, that all those fields actually rest upon, you know, these deeper truths. All right, and and so what I'm going to try to do, among other things in this series, is to get that across in a non-wishy-washy uh, fashion, but to be quite rigorous. And again, the, my model here is what Jordan Peterson did with his commentary on at least the early uh, books of the Old Testament, where he where he was just trying to show, you know, given his professional training and his clinical experience and whatnot, that hey, from a psychological perspective, there's a lot of wisdom in these ancient stories that have been passed down to us. And, you know, you shouldn't just dismiss this as a goofy fairy tale or something that primitive people who didn't know anything passed among themselves. But now we know better that, you know, he was saying, no, these stories are worth studying, whether or not you believe their literal history. Okay, so with that preamble... Let me now turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Okay, 
I'll read it once more without my dramatic pauses just to make sure you're getting the whole thing in case my cadence was throwing you off there. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Okay. So, let me just stress that, say what you will about Christianity, it was not invented to become a popular belief system among men, right? If you are going to invent Christianity from scratch, you would not have made it difficult, for one thing. You would not have you know, had Jesus telling people, you know, there might be a lot of trials and tribulations in this world. You know, take up your cross and follow me. That's not typically the way you... Uh, make friends and influence people. And among other things, certainly if I were going to just invent something, I would not have started it like this. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was, what the heck are they even talking about? Right. I remember when I was younger, just being baffled by this, like what, you know, among other things, it seems like a waste of time. Like you get to it. What are you talking about? But of course, now <laughs> that I'm much more knowledgeable and wiser about things, this seems incredibly profound such that I am going to devote this entire episode just to unpacking part of what I think is in this combination of letters, right? And I said that quite deliberately, right? There's a lot of meaning tightly packed into this particular arrangement of symbols. And that's what I want you to walk away from this episode appreciating. So before I turn to more secular arguments, let me first continue with quoting scripture. So here is Genesis 1. This is how the Bible opens. Again, this is New King James Version. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. Then God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters. Okay, and it goes on. Now, I think from my emphasis, you folks understood what my point was there. Before the material universe existed, before time and space as we know it, were created, again, with all the stuff, I'll say it this one time and then I'm not going to keep saying it. If you don't believe in the historical authenticity of these statements, that's fine. Just suspend your disbelief. Treat it as literature if you want to do that, okay? Because again, this is so gorgeous. This is so compelling and profound. 
even if you don't think it's based, you know, tied to historical events, I think you're going to get something out of this. And then, of course, I think the more you let that sit, you're going to realize, well, wait a minute, actually, this is tied to historical events. But either way, what I'm saying here is in that account, notice, even before sound existed that could be vibrated and before people had little bones in their ear that could vibrate and send signals to their brain so they could hear something. It says that God said, let there be light, right? God was speaking the universe into existence. And so that is closely connected to what we're seeing here in the first chapter of John, that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. See, and all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Okay, so, yes, you know, this is like, oh, the word's Jesus, okay, we got it. And Jesus is God, because there's the Trinity, okay, got it. So if God, you know, if we know from Genesis that God made the universe, well, then Jesus made the universe just by the transitive property. Here. <laughs> you know, God is Jesus, God made the universe, therefore Jesus made it, right? But it's more profound than that. It's deeper than merely that syllogism that God spoke the universe into existence and here we're told that Jesus is the word so everything that was made was made through Jesus through the word God spoke everything into existence reality as we know it the structure of reality was spoken into existence and to speak means there are words, and what's the word of God? Jesus. But also, John is emphasizing here, so you don't get confused. Don't think that Jesus and God are utterly distinct. No, because it says the word was with God and the word was God. All right, so that's what he's doing there. In fact, um, R.C. Sproul I was just re-listening to some of his stuff on this, uh, you know, first chapter in John. Uh, according to him, the church, you know, the early church in like the first three centuries, particularly the more intellectually trained ones, like people familiar with Greek philosophy and whatnot, he said they were just completely absorbed by these opening lines, this this prologue, as it were, to the Gospel of John. You know, this this sort of backdrop before we dive into the action, um, you know, starting in verse six. Okay. So, um, for one thing that Sproul stresses that the Greek, you know, it, written in the Greek, the word you would use is the logos, L-O-G-O-S. You know, I might say logos, but Sproul says it logos. And again, that that's, to translate that from the Greek into English, you know, what's the what word would you use? Oh, you were use the word word, right? That's so that's why here when I'm reading it says in the beginning was the word. It doesn't say in the beginning was the logos or the logic or something. It says word because that's the way to translate it. But Sproul's point is, or one of his points, is that that you know Greek word logos is of course related to our words, uh, you know, for one thing, logic. Okay, so there is that element. 
but more generally, you know, things that end with ology, right? Theology, biology, methodology, right? These are all like the systematic study of things. That's partly what's going on here, right? So what Sproul says is that this concept, you know, in Greek philosophy, what does it do? It is the um, the vehicle through which order is brought to bear on reality. Right, the, the cosmos aren't chaos, or I don't know if you would say isn't. I'm not sure if cosmos is plural in that sense, but it's orderly, right? The natural world has an inner logic to it. And in terms of classical Greek philosophy, like that's partly what the logos is doing. It represents the rationality of reality. At this point, I think I want to stress too that this idea that words have power, right? I'm just going to keep giving you more examples and circling back, but I, you know, just to say this, what the theme is going to be throughout this, this notion that words have power beyond the mere transmission of information that the sender tried to put into the words. Okay. So besides, you know, these biblical examples, just take standard, you know, literature, fiction, wizards, whether when they cast a spell or a witch, right? People who have magical powers, they cast a spell. What do they do? They have to speak words, right? So if you think about it, it's not obvious why that would be the case. But there's plenty of examples where for something significant to happen, words need to be uttered. And so just, I, I want to suggest that that's not arbitrary, that there, that makes sense. Before I move on from just this notion of logos, let me remind some of you that back in the BobMurphyShow.com slash 138, episode 138, I had an episode, the title was Why the Left Hates Christianity. And there I had the Greek, you know, using Greek characters, spelling out logos, and let me just read the, the blurb I gave to this episode. Bob first observes that the left, with a capital L, institutionally hates Christianity. So there I meant, I'm not saying every single person who considers him or herself a leftist hates Christianity, but I'm saying the left as an institution clearly does. And that standard explanations, such as its alleged bigotry, don't explain why the left gives Islam a pass. Christianity stands in the way of the leftist agenda. Moreover, if the devil exists, he would not fa- he would he would favor not just the false religion of say environmentalism and marxism, but also postmodernism for Jesus is the logos. Ultimately, the gospel reconciles God and man, which is not what the devil wants. Okay? So there what I am saying is the postmodernism with its deconstructionism and, you know, oh, we can take the text and make it mean what we want. And that, 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 that besides just, in my view, being gobbledygook and whatever, that no, there's a deeper uh, agenda there where by undermining the, you know, words, language, meaning, 
truth, it's a direct attack on the logos. Okay. Now we're going to start transitioning into more secular considerations that are still going to buttress this theme. So you may be familiar with, um, there's a, I think it's fairly famous tract called The Unreasonable Effectiveness of Mathematics in the Natural Sciences. And it was written by some physicist, I think like in the 60s. Okay, and the idea, and there's other quotes from, you know, Einstein and Feynman and stuff, I have various takes on this, but it it's not obvious why should mathematics be so useful in, you know, uh, electronics and physics and, and such. All right, it's not obvious. And related to that, though, I want to mention, notice that logic, right, the logos, can rely on symbols, right? There's, like, I took a course in symbolic logic. You're, you're, at, a, you're at a P and then an arrow, Q. That's if P, then Q, that kind of stuff. Oh, and if the arrows are going both ways, then it's, if and only if, right? There's all kinds of stuff like that. You can study truth tables, and, it, and so you can reduce things to mere symbols and learn the rules that way. Okay, that's great. But my point is that that's, that's not really math, right? It's sort of an underpinning of mathematics per se, but strictly speaking, logic, I think, is more foundational than mathematics. And notice that in logic you know, what you can have are syllogisms, right? So you can do logic in words. And in fact, the point of a proof is that it means something, right? So it kind of, you know, it's this fine, subtle distinction where on the one hand, yes, you study symbolic logic or, you know, that they can get you going and saying, you know, Socrates was a man, all men are mortal. Therefore, Socrates is mortal, right? And they can show you the structure of an argument in words, but then they want to, you know, make it abstract and just say P, and then P implies Q, therefore Q, right? Just to show you that this is the structure of the argument. But again, even there, the whole enterprise, the whole point of doing all that is because it helps you manipulate symbols that actually do have meaning, all right? So what part of what we're going to be doing here in this episode is – just like we can say there's an unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics in the natural sciences. And again, I want to stress that, folks. So I'll, of course I'll link to it, either that or, um, I don't know if I'll be able to get the full text because I think it was long, or, or other scientists talking about it. But again, I want to stress, it's not that this is obvious, right? It, there's no reason that it should be the case that nature seems to obey a fairly parsimonious set of laws that can be elegantly expressed in mathematical form. And yet it does seem to be the case that the basic constituents of physical reality at least obey those laws. Okay, but what I'm trying to get folks to see is I think one could write a comparable essay called The Unreasonable Effectiveness of semantics in the social sciences. All right, that's that's what I'm driving at in this. So just as you know, some of the top physicists would just pause and say, you know, let's take a break 
for a minute, you know, from us trying to figure out like a better set of laws and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, Einstein superseded Newton and now we're all trying to beat him. And we, these guys over here are working on quantum mechanics and these people over here are working on uh, dark matter and stuff spanning mul- multiple galaxies. And then ultimately we want some theory that handles it all. Why are we even doing that? Why why should, why do we even think that might work? That's kind of crazy. Who said? Right when now I'm <laughs> I'm saying I think we know what the answer to that is. Okay. So just as there, the point being, they want to shake people and say, "Hey, this is amazing." When you stop and think about it, like let's not lose sight of that. And of course, that's what Hayek was trying to do in one of his knowledge papers. I think the use of knowledge in society, I think it was in that one, right? Where he was saying like this order that we see in the market economy, if this had been the result of deliberate human design, it would be heralded as one of the greatest achievements of mankind. But since it happens, quote, automatically, we just take it for granted. Oh yeah, when I go to the store, there's going to be all kinds of cans on the shelves and and, and we only get upset when 2% of the population can't get a job. All right. And so what I am saying is beyond the specific application in the in economics, where it seems that an invisible hand is guiding things, isn't it? Uh it, it's it's broader than that. And so what I'm trying to get across here is natural spoken language is unreasonably effective in the social sciences. More generally, how do we get along in this world where there's other people? And you, know, you might say, well, duh, just like someone might say, well, of course math helps when you want to figure out the trajectory of a ball. And I want to say, why? Who said? There's, if, if you don't have a theory of the origin of the universe, you just say, well, uh-huh, then there's no reason to expect that balls would obey a simple you know equation of parabolic motion and then you could start adding in all kinds of complications right why why should it humans don't you're trying to model the uh trajectory of a human body except if you literally shoot out of a cannon or, <laughs> or something then you could but in general no humans have a very complicated apparent set of rules that guide their motion and you need to understand language to have any hope of comprehending what they're doing. And yet, but yet as we go through this, my claim is going to be that language is more effective. It, it arms us better. It's a better, it's a more potent tool than it has any right to be. If you didn't already know how effective language is, you would be surprised to see this, put it that way. All right, and so that's partly what I'm trying to unpack as we go through this. Let's take a break from the action, folks, to remind you that if you like what you're hearing on the Bob Murphy Show, it would be great if you gave some support. So go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute to figure out the details. But hey, this isn't a shakedown. I'm going to do it whether or not you support, but it does help. Thanks, everybody. Let's get back to the action. One of the claims I want to make is that in various areas, 
I think humans, even when they're starting out with a an agnostic or even an outright atheistic worldview, developments in their field are pushing them to realize that, wow, there's a surprising amount of meaning, apparently, embedded in the very structure of reality. All right, so in biology, for example, there's the so-called intelligent design movement. Now, whatever one's views on that are, I am saying that people are making discoveries in biology that are challenging at least a crude version of the old, what was called modern synthesis. Right, so the standard textbook way that evolution has been taught since whatever, 1940, let's say, is that it is a blind process. There's no goal. There's no teleology, if you know that word. It's not that humans are more evolved than bacteria that are on your kitchen counter, meaning bacteria today, right? They're just as evolved as you are. Their genes have survived up till now, just like yours have. You can say that you're more complex than whatever. Okay, but thus far, by any by by the only criterion that matters to nature, they're just as as evolved and as adapted to their environment as you are. And you know, you could say, well, I can spray my cleaning product on the thing and wipe it away, and ha ha. And after you're dead, bacteria similar to the ones on your countertop are still going to be alive, right? So it's just because you kill some of them doesn't mean, you know, humans win win the race for mastering planet Earth vis-a-vis the bacteria, right? From a blind Darwinian perspective, of course. Obviously not from a Christian perspective. Okay. And so recently on the Bob Murphy Show... I had on Jonathan Bartlett. I think it was 303, folks, if you're if you want to look up. I'll put a link either way. Right now you're listening to BobMurphyShow.com slash 305. And what Bartlett discussed in that episode was he had recently published in a journal of I think they called it theoretical biology. Um his paper with a co-author where they were making the distinction between mutations that were genuinely random with respect to fitness and mutations that actually were predisposed to give an advantageous uh, outcome in terms of reproductive fitness. And I'll just be real quick. One example, the kind of thing he had in mind was the fact that, you know, in the immune system, what happens if there's an antigen that your body doesn't recognize? It's not like, oh, yeah, this is an infection we uh, beat off six months ago or something, and now it's easy for us. If it's something novel, there's certain elements in your immune system that will rapidly mutate to try to find the the key to to knocking out this particular invader. But it's not that your whole body just starts mutating like crazy. No, it's only the select cells, even within the immune system itself. There's different kinds of, you know, some of them like 
just attach themselves to the antigen just like to be a marker and then the other ones actually go and try to create antibodies and such and the point being that it's only a very specific subset of your cells in your body get activated to start rapidly mutating when there's this foreign invader and so that so even though that's mutation that's clearly not random now don't get me wrong. That's not by by itself. That observation, right? Standard Darwinian biologists are familiar with how the immune system works. But I'm saying they would have to tell an evolutionary story that did, in fact, rely on genuinely random mutations to explain the origin of this property of the human body. Okay, and so, and then Jonathan was just giving other examples showing how a lot of the mutation that we see right now is not the quote blind random mutations that are a necessary feature at least of a theory of Darwinian evolution that says there's no purpose involved that this is just mere happenstance okay that there's no purpose or design involved there's no intelligence behind it okay so again it's not that we've completely squeezed out any hope of the Darwinian story, but my point is, it's it, you can't just assume that any mutation is like that. Like, oh, there looks like there's there's purpose or goal seeking built into it, even in terms of a lot of the mutation that we could observe right now in real time. More generally, it's commonplace in biology to refer to the codes that are in DNA. Right, so just just speaking like that. And more generally, just to take a moment to just talk about that, you know, what what do we what does it mean when we say something's written in code? What does that mean? So it means there's something observable. And some people, when they observe it, derive no meaning from it. To them it seems random. Whereas other people, when they see the same evidence, perceive there to be a deeper meaning to it. And that, oh, there's a message here, or there's meaning, let's just say, being conveyed. There's information contained in the arrangement of this item. I'll be vague about what it is. I was going to say object, but maybe it's not, maybe that's not the right way to talk about it. Like if it's pixels on a computer screen. Maybe you don't want to call that an object. All right, so to say something is in code or encoded, it definitely means there's information embedded in it that can be unlocked, but maybe you need a certain process to do it, right? So the DNA encodes information. Biologists a long time ago looking at, you know, cell, like they might have thought, yeah, there's information in there, but they wouldn't have understood how is the genetic code actually instantiated. They wouldn't have been able to do that. Okay, likewise, if archaeologists you know, find some old tablets or whatever, they might just, might just look to, to certain people, like scratches on it, but other people might say, whoa, whoa, whoa that's actually... Uh, you know, a census, or that's some some banker tallying up what happened that day, or whatever, right? That they see information, whereas others just see randomness. Okay. 
So even though that's a commonplace observation, and, and you can formalize this stuff too, right? That like you can take a bunch of plain text, perform some mathematical operations on it, and render it encrypted. And then, oh yeah, you need the private key to be able to unlock that. Okay, so is the information in the encrypted message? Yes and no, right? If you don't have the private key to, to unencrypt it, you that information is inaccessible to you. But yet there's also a sense in which, well, clearly the information has to be there because somebody with the private key or, you know, again, we're almost getting philosophical here. Like, do you want to say, no, it's, that thing is devoid of information until I combine it with the private key and then those two things put together because the private key by itself also doesn't have the message. So, you know, it's just this weird conceptual thing here where you've got two disparate items, each of which in isolation doesn't contain any informational content, at least that we can use, and yet you combine them using a mathematical process, by the way, and then all of a sudden you can read the unencrypted message. And, oh, oh, yeah, totally. There's lots of information packed into this. All right, so I, I, I want us to keep these things in mind and realize that th- there's a lot there. That's, that's kind of a mind-blowing concept when you really just ponder that. How, like the, what, 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 how is that possible? Right, you're, the, you know, there was a story where Richard Feynman, when he was at Los Alamos, he would write letters to his wife, and there were censors, of course, right? The government, you know, military people reading every piece of mail coming and going because they want to make sure somebody's not mailing secrets about fission to the Soviets or something. And so, and they actually didn't stop that. Um, there was a spy. But in any event, and Feynman and his wife used to, you know, like try to encode the messages and then send it. So like the sensor would open it and read it and not know what it was and then just send it through. I think maybe once in a while they just wouldn't send it because they were, they were afraid he was passing secrets. So like, it was kind of a game he and his wife would play where, you know, what can we say that the sensor is going to let through, but yet clearly, you know, there's only information you and I are going to know. Okay. So anyway, but that's again, just the, the, the ability to be able to do that, and just, you know, during World War II when the various powers are sending messages to their sub-commanders and the enemy can receive it but not know what we're saying. Oh, but when we can have people called code breakers and actually they did break the Japanese code and we're able to read the instructions of the Japanese high command we're giving to their uh, their naval officers. and da, da, Right, so that's just interesting how that works. Okay, but again... Because what, what's the fundamental thing? What does it mean? What's the difference between an encrypted and an unencrypted message is the observer can derive meaning from it. Like, you know, if you had a, you know, let's say somebody did a real simple encryption method that they just took every letter and, and advanced it by one, right? So like if it said the, the T would be turned into a U, and the H would be turned into an I, and the E would be turned into an F, right? If you just took every letter and made it up, and then if it, if it, if it were a Z, you'd, you would turn it into an A. All right, if you just went through and did that, when f- someone first looked at it, 
they wouldn't know what the heck it was, but with the spaces and whatever, and they could pretty quickly like see, oh, the frequency of these, these are probably E's if they think it's written in English. And, you know, you could pretty, and then if you just tried it and you started, you know, you started writing it, well, let me just try backing the letters up one. And you started, and then you wrote the, and then the next word, like after you got three syllables into the, or sorry, uh, three letters into the second word, you would be absolutely convinced, okay, yeah, that I broke the code. Because as you started to do it, you would see meaning in those symbols. It would be obvious to you, you know, looking at it, you would be able to tell, hey, has this message been decrypted yet? Anybody can look at it in two seconds and say whether it has been decrypted or not. Okay. I realize arguing that there's meaning or design in biology and that, hey, it's possible even if we're looking at mutation, which seems to be the uh, the epitome of blind variation in nature that no, when you say when you start seeing mutations in your immune system in response to an infection, that's clearly not blind. It's not that that serves no purpose for your body, right? It's so again, it's we're realizing that you see order and meaning in biology, and that's what the intelligent design movement is saying. Now, again, I'm not going to get into that debate here. I understand what the counterarguments are. Believe me, folks. I spent a long time researching both sides of this stuff. I've, I've been to conferences where they had speakers on both topics and whatnot. So believe me, I know what the other side, their standard shtick is going to be. I got it. But part of what is happening is results from, call it information theory, are being brought to bear in the field of biology. And these ID people are saying the, the standard story doesn't work. We're not necessarily denying that maybe the theory of common descent is true. It could be that all organisms today share a common ancestor, but still the story of how did all this complexity and order that we see right now in living organisms, where did that come from? Again, not in terms of religious faith, but in terms of just informational theory, like if you're trying to explain the information that's in a hard drive and whatever, you know, the kind of tools and principles you would use to talk like that in computer science, when you bring that to bear on the biological realm, some people at least conclude that, yeah, there's, they're not really, you know, the standard Darwinian story doesn't even really get off the ground in terms of explaining where did this information come from? And to just say, oh, well, it's natural selection. I think you're just pushing the problem back. All right, real, real quick detour, and then I, I'll get back to the main point here, folks. If I'm hiking with my buddy, and it's a high altitude thing, and it's pretty cold, and then we see what seems to be letters in the ground of um, you know ice that say, help us, plane crashed, we're going to say, whoa, somebody wrote that. That's crazy, right? They're clearly, they're, there's meaning there. So there was an intelligence trying to communicate. And then your buddy, or my buddy in the story, is an atheist and says, no, 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 no there's not. Let me go up and say, no, see, look, this I can explain all this with natural principles. We don't have to assume there was some intelligence here that you can see there's 
there, there's divots, you know, the, the like a little trench that was that was in the in the ground in the dirt, in the shape of you know a P and L and A and N and E and so forth to spell out plane crashed. And so, really, all that happened is when it was raining, the water would come down the hill and then it would fill in these um, trenches. And then overnight it froze, and that's why now we see these ice letters. But, you know, all completely – so he could do that. And I say, okay, sure. You Maybe it's not that someone took a bunch of ice and arranged it in the form of letters, but you still have just pushed the problem back. Why were the trenches in the dirt in the side of the hill like this in just this pattern? Come on. Clearly somebody was trying to signal to us – Right. So that's, you get how that goes. Right. So, likewise, I'm saying if the way you explain the information that is jam packed into even the smallest organisms right now that are completely overrunning planet Earth, it's teeming with them. And they're, again, no matter how close you zoom in on them, just amazing complexity, intricate machinery in the smallest of cells let alone when they come together, you know, in larger systems within organisms and such, just inconceivably intricate machinery. And you say, where, where did those designs, where did all that come from? And if you say, oh, it came from the environment, ultimately, right? Like that's how you're trying to explain it. Yeah, there were just random blind mutations and then whatever conferred reproductive fitness given the environmental landscape in which these early organisms found themselves, that explains all the diversity and tremendous beauty and elegance in the you know, biosphere today. And I want to say, you know, I think if you try to actually quantitatively model that, what you've just done is orders of magnitude more obtuse and absurd than the guy in my hypothetical story about us hiking who says, oh no, Bob, you don't need to assume that there was an intelligent designer of these ice letters, as you call them, because look at it, it's just if if the if this dirt had been dug out in precisely this fashion, then when it rained, it would fill up. And I can, you know, I can explain this through natural causes. No designer needed. That I think that's the move you're making. If you want to say, oh yeah, just the the structure of pre-life earth was such that all the organisms we see today and the the operation of the human eye and all this stuff, all of that is just the result of the fact that there were certain volcanoes here and there and that, you know, this was the composition of our atmosphere and blah, 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 blah. And this was the kind of electromagnetic radiation that this ball of gas nearby was throwing off and therefore, yep, all the organisms we see today, that, that's what would pop out of that system. And I, I, I don't, no, I don't think that works. I get how if you're an atheist, that has to work. That has to, or you could say maybe aliens did it and they came from a solar system that was older. And so they had more time for evolution to work because of, you know, the, just the constraints with our story. It doesn't fit. Okay, whatever. But I think if you believe that, no, no, the basic Darwinian story where some lightning hit a pond and then that was the first uh, reproducing what we would call biological organism and 
and eventually, you know, there was a what we would think of as a modern cell, and that that that, that uh, no, I think that story again is orders of magnitude more ridiculous than my hypothetical hiking partner. Okay, but I understand it's hard to picture it in biology. It's it's hard to to assess it objectively, right? That clearly. If one is a Christian, you're going to be predisposed to say, no, 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 I can't see how you can explain this without God. Because it you know, makes us feel good. Gives evidence for our creator. Whereas if you don't believe in the supernatural, well, you kind of have to think the story makes sense because what else are you going to do? All right? I get it. But let's move to something else. What about mathematics? So here's another example. Besides the unreasonable effectiveness in mathematics, in the natural sciences, even within pure math itself, there are certain results that are jaw-dropping, they're breathtaking, and of particular relevance to this episode, there's no reason for them to be true. All right, so for example, or I should say the example, is what's called Euler's identity. And so it's the E... Euler's number, the constant E, raised to the power of I times pi plus one equals zero. Euler's identity. Um, my friend Gene Callahan one time blogged and, and said a short proof of God's existence and wrote that out. Or he may have written out the formula. I, I, think, he, I think he wrote this. The formula is more general, and then the identity is when you plug in uh, a certain value. Okay. And he wasn't saying that, Gene wasn't saying that to be cheeky, or he wasn't merely trying to be cheeky. Maybe he was being cheeky. All right, and, and it's funny just to see the reaction people get to that. Like, Christians, a lot of them tend to say, oh, yeah, that's cool. Or they, or they might say, what, what is that? I don't even know what that is. And, you know, Gene can explain it. Whereas atheists bristle, and it just happened the other day where I mentioned that, and some guy was saying, what, what are you talking about? You know, uh, this is... I don't know that the guy was an atheist, by the way, but he was objecting to it, saying this is kind of silly, that, you know, I'm okay if you guys want to make arguments about the existence of God, and, you know, Aquinas has some cool stuff, but come on, just to point to an unexpected result from math and say that's proven, come on. And it just, no, come on. That's really understating what this is, that, uh, you know, Gene went and dug up quotes, like Richard Feynman said, called this our jewel. Uh, I think he was referring to the the formula version of it, right? And so... Just real quickly on this, and I'll, I'll post a video, folks. It was interesting. I um, I didn't realize it was going to have anything to do with it, but this math channel that I like, one of the episodes was saying, um, how would you, what would it look like if a bank paid an interest rate of the square root of negative one? And I was like, what the heck? And Because I um, wrote a dissertation on capital interest theory. I thought I should go check this out. And it, so it was mostly mostly a mathematical, it wasn't an economics thing. But he ended up, um, he had this results where he was just trying to say, like, if, if a bank did pay you in terms of what's called I, so I, folks, is, is, the, is defined as the square root of negative one. So th- it, that's called uh, an imaginary number because if you think about it, 
you know, the square root of something means the the answer is if you take that thing and multiply it by itself, you get the original, right? So the square root of four is either plus or minus two, right? Because two times two is four and negative two times negative two is also four. So that's why the square, okay. But when you say square root of negative one, you're saying, okay, what thing multiplied by itself equals negative one? And, and there's no real number that does that. Right, because if you take a, a negative number multiplied by itself, the answer is positive. If you take a positive number, multiply. Okay, so mathematicians just defined; they just stipulated and said, "Okay, well, suppose there's this thing i that we'll define as the square root of negative one," and then they went ahead and built a whole branch of ma- mathematics around that, or, or or a field of numbers called the complex numbers, which are, you know, you, you have two of them. It's a you know an ordered pair. And you have the real part, so it's a real number, and the imaginary part, so it's a you know a coefficient times i, and then you can plot it in x y space, and when you do that, if a bank pays um, an interest rate of i, and you go to like plot it out. After pi time period, the you know if you have an arrow that's pointing to the right and then you rotate it 180 degrees counterclockwise, that's you know if if you had the setup that this guy gave, you would realize oh yeah that's how much interest you've earned after pi units of time, and what your actual bank balance is at that point is negative one right? Because it's the left arrow pointing one unit to the left. And since it's on the x-axis, you know, the, the y-coordinate is zero, so there's no imaginary part. And so then I realized, like, oh, so that's why E raised to the I times pi equals negative one, which just if you rearrange is, you know, Euler's form or identity. Okay, so anyway, that's one particular, but in general... Why is this so amazing? And why did Gene say this is a proof of God's existence? And why did Feynman call it our jewel? And why have mathematicians just been astonished by this result? Is because it's linking things that don't seem intrinsically to have anything to do with each other. So E, Euler's number, that's uh, you know, 2.7, da da da. da you know, it's it's a number, it's an irrational number, but it has the property that E raised to the x power. Right, so e to the x, if you take the derivative of that, the answer is e to the x. All right, and that's also, you know, that's that it sort of gives us the, the connection, like it's involved in calculus and whatnot. But that's also why when you integrate things that are growing uh, exponentially, then you know where the where the amount of growth is proportional to the size of the object, right? So if something's growing at ten percent per year, it's that the amount that it goes up by keeps getting bigger and bigger, right? So when you model growth like that, the answer you know always involves e to the thing. Like if it's a time thing, that's you know e to the t is is in there is in the answer. What was interesting too is in that math video. When the um, you know the guy first motivated what it would look like to um, 
with compounding of interest. And you're saying like, if you got paid a certain amount annually versus like the year divided into 12 equal amounts or, you know, the, the yearly amount divided by 12 and what if you got paid that per month. And so then that actually be more total interest. And then if you just kept doing that process and there, the, you know, there was an, uh, an E to the X outcome there. And he said that actually accountants or bankers, you know, they had derived that they understood here's what the expression is for continuously compounded interest. And they knew that before Newton and Leibniz, you know, developed the differential calculus. Okay. So just like I believe, you know, I think it's the case that some of the earliest records we have of quantitative items are you know, having to do with commerce. Right, that that's that was part of the impetus. So again, it's, it's apparently the properties of E to the X were discovered first in the context of uh, you know trying to <laughs> people trying to charge interest and in, in having a con- compound continuously because that's hey that's that's the most we can wring out of this. Okay, but so that's what E is. What's I again? The square root of negative one, which is so weird that it was literally called an imaginary number, like to show it's not real. It's imaginary. And then pi. Pi obviously has to do with circles, you know, ge- geometry. It's a, it's a natural constant. It's an irrational number. And it is the ratio between the diameter and the circumference of a circle. Okay. And then, well, for that matter, one and zero are pretty fundamental numbers too. Okay? So all those different things that don't seem intrinsically having anything to do with each other, and yet they all come together such that E raised to the I pi power plus one equals zero. Incidentally, let me mention um, that math channel that I like. Uh, when he was going through, when I, I watched a separate video just on Euler's formula slash identity, and the derivation and such. And we, you know, what does it mean, man? He was stressing it's, so that's the way mathematicians write it, but it's not merely like, it's not just the E is some number and then, oh, and you raise it to the I pi. Like, no, there's, there's a certain meaning to take E to the I because strictly speaking, what does that mean to say 2.7 raised to the square root of negative one power? Like what the heck is that? Okay. So, but there's there's a non-arbitrary, very legitimate sense in which that the way they write that out does mean something, and it is related to E. Okay. Maybe I haven't convinced you. All right, let me just give you a hypothetical, right? Because, again, I can see people's reactions like, okay, yeah, Euler's formula, but it's not that even when Feynman appreciated it, he went out and said, I believe Jesus fed 5,000 people with some loaves and fishes that, okay, yeah, that's cool. I, you can even say, Bob, I wouldn't have expected that. So what? Okay, fine. My point, though, is can we at least agree there should be some threshold of unexpectedness, of a seeming order, of seeming meaningfulness in pure mathematics itself such that if you were to see that, then you would say, okay, you, like you wouldn't have to necessarily believe that the Bible is true. You could think we were in the matrix or something, okay? But that you would just realize 
there was more order and design in what you perceived to be the cold, uncaring universe, and that it seemed to have been intelligently designed. Again, not that you have to believe in Yahweh, but like you, you again, you could say maybe we're in a matrix, or maybe we're just in a well, yeah, a computer simulation. Meaning, you know, in the world of the matrix, there still were human bodies with like you know plugged in. But I'm saying. You know, you could take it even further and say maybe we're just in a computer simulation somewhere. Maybe we're a part of a video game from some advanced being. Okay? You can say that. But my point is, I think you need to admit to yourself that there is a threshold. Maybe it hasn't been met yet. So, for example, the Mandelbrot set. There's, I'll, I'll put the links if you haven't seen it. But there's a certain it, – it's from what's called chaos theory, fractals. Uh, this guy Mandelbrot, who was a pioneer in that field, he came up with this – it's called the Mandelbrot set. You probably have seen iconic images of it um, in my personal website, consultingbyrpm.com. I have that up there as like the as the banner. Um, but you, what you can do is – so it's a very simple – I don't know if el- yeah, algorithm is the word, like to determine whether something's in the set or not, it, whether, you know, whether a number is in the Mandelbrot set or not. Okay. And, um, but what's cool is if you take a computer and you color code pixels, it creates this elegant fractal pattern that's just gorgeous and you can zoom in on it. And, you know, there's YouTube things of this, and it's like, you know, some guys at the frat house could spend 30 minutes just watching that thing. Okay, so my point is, my claim is, suppose you're sitting there zooming in on it, and it's, you know, it's a pattern. Like, the, the idea, folks, in case you're, it's like, a, it's a fractal. So, like, if you zoom in on a little proportion and blow it up, it looks like the, uh, you know, the original Right, the more you, when you keep zooming in on it, whether your magnification is one times or 10 billion times, it kind of looks like the same pattern, but yet it's not identical. Right, so that it's that weird in between where there's, there's order, but yet a little bit of chaos. Okay. And so, in principle, what if you were zooming in, zooming in, like they had some, you know, supercomputers crank it out and they have the, the greatest magnification, zoom in, and then as it got, you know, you you homed in on a certain region and it started calling, you know, calling in the pixels and it clearly had written John 3.16, right? So, you know, the word John and then 3 colon 16, which is a reference to a famous... Um, portion of scripture that Christians like to share at football games and such, right? And we'll obviously cover that when we get to it in this series. All right. So in principle, that could happen. You could say, well, no, it wouldn't. I don't, I don't think. Okay. But in principle, it could happen. And you know, if you saw it, I grant you, you'd say, what the heck? Let me go. Some Christian hacked into this. This isn't real. But what if you, when you went and ran the nut, like it just turned out that, holy cow, at that particular level of magnification, that really is the way you would color in the Mandelbrot set. So wouldn't that be st- stunning? And would you just uh, 
after you got over your initial shock, just say, huh, okay, that was unexpected, and then go on like nothing had happened. I hope not. Or if that, even if that's not, but still, it's some level. You know, what if the background radiation of the universe, whatever it is, three Kelvin or something, and what if people, you know, some audio file is looking at the, um, the wave pattern of it and says, you know, that looks, that looks interesting. And he tries something and all of a sudden it gets rendered into plain text. Like he cracked the code, the cosmic code. And then we're just literally reading messages from the beings that created our universe. Would you still say at that point, well, uh, in fairness there, it wasn't purely mathematical. I assumed it was you're getting the background radiation, but I'm saying real fundamental stuff. Okay. Well, I don't know if you're working with some sums or something and you've reached some results about the distribution of primes, let's say, and you came up with a way to assign, you know, okay, from this point on every time, you know, if the gap between the prime numbers is such and such, that's an A. If the gap between them is this much, it's a B and whatever you did to that. And then you plotted it starting at a trillion forward and it spelled out a message saying, hello world. Wouldn't you fall out of your chair? Again, you're saying, well, Bob, I'm going to test that, and that's not going to be the case. Right. I'm not expecting it would be the case. I'm just trying to make the point that, in principle, what if it seemed like there was meaning embedded within mathematics? Would that shake you out of your stupor? Okay. So what I'm getting at is, I think once you open your mind to that possibility, then you look around and realize there's meaning packed into every element of our reality and you don't see it because you've trained yourself to think that it's not there. And so you can't see it. Okay. Different topic, but it's related in Kantian philosophy. There's this concept of the synthetic a priori. And the idea, I'm not going to dwell on it here, but the idea is the a priori part means you don't need experience in order to validate it. The synthetic part, though, means that that's to distinguish it from analytic. And so if something is analytic a priori, that's like a bachelor is an unmarried male. It's a true statement. We can verify that it's true just by looking at it. It's not that we have to go out and quantitatively assess or empirically assess and take a survey and say, oh, we've looked at, we've hunted down every last bachelor on planet Earth and, yep, checks out, all of them are unmarried males. Okay, so we think the statement's true. The way you would say, like, is the sun hot? You'd have to go empirically assess that claim. But the claim, bachelor, all bachelors are unmarried males, you don't need to go test it. It just follows from analyzing the terms. Okay, so that's the analytic a priori statement. And then, you know, there's synthetic a posteriori, where it's telling you something about reality. It's not merely a tautology from the terms, but you need to go test it. Again, the, the sun is hot, or, or it could be false too, right? Uh, the sun is cold. And we, once you define your terms, it's clear you go empirically assess that. Nope, that's not the case, at least not right now. 
All right, so whether it's true or false, the point is that claim is synthetic a posteriori. But then there was this other interaction of the concepts of a statement that is synthetic a priori, and the question is, is that even a thing? Is there such a thing as synthetic a priori statements? And philosophers have different takes on that. Right? In the Austrian tradition, Hans Hoppe thinks praxeology falls into that category, that you can derive results in economics just by thinking through the implications of the terms, of the concepts. Like you, know, you first conceive of action, again, which is like the, the merging of the physical world with intentionality with meaning and then you start deriving things like opportunity cost right opportunity cost is is not the same thing as action but yet you don't need to go test stuff to just derive opportunity cost and you know marginal utility things like that all right so that's Hoppe's point is you can derive a lot of that stuff through armchair theorizing and yet when all is said and done, it seems like you've done more than merely play with definitions. It seems like you've learned something about reality when you go through that process. So that's an odd thing. Some Austrians liken it to geometry. Now, again, it's a little bit weird here because I think Mises thought results in math were analytic. But something like the Pythagorean theorem you don't need to go test it. You don't need to go measure a bunch of triangles to see if they, you know, uphold the rule. It's you can prove it from the axioms and Euclidean geometry, but it doesn't seem like that's merely, it doesn't seem like you're just doing a Sudoku puzzle or something. It seems like there's a deep meaning there. And that's why we focus on that, right? There's plenty of other true theorems we could prove that aren't interesting, Right? You could you could build a computer program that or write a computer program that just generates thousands and thousands of correct proofs about geometry, but most of them would be uninteresting. In order for it to be useful, you would have to supplement that with something to say, is this result meaningful to humans? Would they care? Would they find it interesting? It's not enough. I mean, it has to be true, right? <laughs> but well, actually, it would even be interesting if you could disprove certain statements too. But the point is, it's not enough that it's true, meaning that it's a valid proof. Only a certain subset are interesting to people. Okay, but again, having said that, it does seem like you've definitely learned something about reality when you ingest the Pythagorean theorem. You, you walk away understanding reality better, and yet there's a sense in which all of that knowledge was already within you. Okay, so now that I've warmed you up with some other fields, let's dive into the meat of what we're covering right now. And that is language itself, spoken language, natural language. So here, let me give you a little bit of background 
in case you're not familiar with some of these results, but when it comes to linguistics, um, Steve Pinker, for example, has a book called The Language Instinct. And the, what he's getting across in that book, the reason he's calling The Language Instinct, he's arguing, re- relying on stuff that you know guys like Noam Chomsky and stuff helps pioneer. But what they realize is human beings and their acquisition of language cannot be explained merely by appeal to the computational power of their minds. And by the way, I meant to say that earlier. I forgot. Uh, when, when I read the Genesis account and I stressed how it said, God said, let there be light. No, I mean, you might have thought it was a God computed or God calculated, but that's not what it said. It's a God said. Okay. So back to what I was talking about. I think originally the the belief was that, oh yeah, humans have very developed brains. They have in, immense um, computational capacities just as a general purpose thinking machine. And they learn language just like humans learn how to drive a car. Clearly, you can't tell an evolutionary story about humans have a predisposition to learn how to drive automobiles because it confers fitness on them and the people that can, you know, drive stick, survive more than, no, that's not what's going on. People just, our minds are good at learning new things and so we can learn how to drive a car, okay? To to give an evolutionary story, all you would really be doing is saying, yes, it benefited our ancestors to be intelligent, to be able to figure things out more quickly than most other animals could. And that's what allowed them to pass on their genes to their descendants and da, da, da. And then given this very flexible, pretty durable, uh, robust learning machine that we have at our disposal, we can learn how to drive. Okay, that makes sense. But the claim among the professional linguists is that doesn't work when explaining how is it that a child, you know, a newborn child then turning into a toddler acquires his or her her, uh, mother tongue and becomes a fluent speaker in his or her native language. How how is it? And it's not, oh, yeah, well, the kid just watches the parents speak and, you know, has the TV on and you pick it up. No, it's what's called scandalous induction in this literature meaning that the amount of evidence they have to work with, the sample set upon which they're training, is too poor to explain the richness of the novel speech that these kids start generating when they're two. All right, why don't I play a clip here? This is uh, Richard Dawkins talking to Steve Pinker. There's, of course, notoriously a lot of controversy about how much is predetermined by the genes and how much the mind is a blank slate, and obviously you're a protagonist in that. Do you think there are actual evolutionary Darwinian reasons for some some genetic predispositions in in the mind? Well, for one thing, blank, yes, blank slates don't do anything. And unless there's some kind of uh, set of motives, uh, one 
can't have a, an, an intelligent system that uh, that does anything, that processes some of the input and ignores others, that treats certain inputs as reinforcers. It's got to have some criterion for deciding when it's learning. You can't do everything by learning. There's got to be some criterion for deciding which should be taken as positive reward, which should be taken as punishment, something of that sort. That's exactly. at least, if nothing else, that's got to be built in. Exactly. And and also the way in which one analyzes the, the sensory input. Uh, you can have, you could imagine a, uh, a mimicking bird that, when exposed to human speech, would be able to mindlessly repeat, reproduce the sound sequence. That's clearly not what our children do. Our children, although of course they have to take an input from the world, they, they have to listen to whether their uh, community is speaking English or Japanese or, uh, or Swahili. What they do in listening to those senses is they chop it into words. They look for the grammatical regularities that group them into phrases. They don't just reproduce the, the sound like parrots. Uh, so there are multiple ways of learning which depend on what species you belong to. You could imagine a continuum between having almost all learned with just a very bare minimum criterion for what to learn and building in just about everything. And uh, I suppose... People have always been a bit biased to thinking that humans rely on learning more than other species. Is it true to say that evolutionary psychologists are seeing more and more that there is rather more detail built in from the start than we had supposed? Uh, yes, I, I would, I would uh, argue that that's the case, which doesn't mean that humans are insensitive to input or don't engage in learning. The question is, how many different kinds of learning are there and how, to what extent is each form of learning tailored to a particular problem. Do we learn to uh, an eye for beauty in a different way than we learn uh, the grammatical rules of our language, which in turn is different from how we learn about the physical world, like what makes objects fall and, and bounce and roll the way they do. So it's not, I don't see it so much as a conflict between nature and nurture, but rather fleshing out uh, how nurture is rooted in nature, that is, what we pay attention to, what conclusions do we draw, how do we analyze the input, uh, what motivates us. And that, I think, throws you back into nature because you can't learn everything. A learning system has to have the machinery that allows it to learn. That machinery, I think, ultimately has to be explained in terms of evolution. Okay. Now I want to also stress that beyond, okay, it seems like humans are hardwired, predisposed to acquiring language. We have a language instinct, just like spiders know how to make webs. It's not that, oh, yes, they have intelligent, or they have powerful brains and can compute angles and things because they learned algebra or uh, geometry and or trigonometry and da 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 and then they no they just automatically do it it's instinct and likewise little kids just pick up their mother tongue it's instinct okay beyond that though i want to say language itself is more than merely a vehicle for trans the transmission of information. That there's something intrinsic to the structure of language itself that seems to pack in meaning beyond that which is explicitly laid on top of it by someone trying to send a message. Okay, so let me... That's what I'm trying to get across here. Let me read something. This is 
Daniel Dennett has a book, Consciousness Explained. I couldn't, with the Googling and trying to find it, I, I couldn't pull up the actual quotes from the book itself, but I found somebody who was doing a book summary of this book. And let me just read, because this guy's talking about it, the, the part that I remember that I want to get across here. Okay, so apparently this is from chapter seven. So what I'm reading right now is not Daniel Dennett. It's some guy who wrote up notes on Daniel Dennett's Consciousness Explained. Okay. Um, what he says here, the invention of good and bad habits of auto-stimulation. Consider this hypothetical just-so story in the history of early man when language or proto-language was just beginning to develop. First, it should be obvious that these early hominids used vocal sounds like our primate cousins and were probably able to discriminate them on the basis of who was uttering them and who was hearing them, and that they utilized information on what the parties might believe or want. For example, hominid elf wouldn't bother trying to get hominid Bob to, to believe there was no food in the cave by grunting no food here if elf believed that Bob already knew that there was no food in the cave, and if Bob thought elf wanted to deceive him, Bob would be apt to view elf's vocalization with cautious skepticism. Da -da -da. Okay, so we might imagine that one of these hominids was in a situation that required assistance and it might ask for help or ask for information. The other hominids might be able to utter other vocalizations that could possibly help the first hominid out if it's in a rut or a trap. Uh, the point being that at some point in the development of language, some interrogative vocalization uh, could produce an answering vocalization providing information of what the other assisting hominid knew. Da -da -da -da. Okay. Then it says, here's where it gets interesting. Now imagine one fine day a hominid mistakenly asks for help and no other hominid is within earshot, except, of course, itself. When the hominid heard its own request, the stimulation provoked the same other helping utterance that the request from another would normally have caused. To the creature's delight, it answered its own question. Okay, so maybe I should have stressed, sorry, folks, before I dove into this reading, D Daniel Dennett in this book isn't talking about language. That's not the point, right? Whereas Steve Pinker's book, The Language Instinct, was obviously about language. No, Dennett here is trying to explain the origin of human consciousness. And he's his theory is, oh, I bet you there was a point when uh, pre-conscious hominids, our ancestors, we can imagine them benefiting from grunting to each other and you know, then having more complex sounds that they made and that that would confer an evolutionary advantage because, you know, they're communicating, we, you know, in our terminology, they're communicating information to each other that of course makes the group more likely to survive. And so the copies of those types of genes would persist. Okay. Um, and then he's saying, but they wouldn't be conscious, right? They wouldn't be thinking like, who am I? Where do you want to be in five years, man? They wouldn't be thinking like that at all. They would just be responding to stimuli. But then he's saying, well, imagine at one point one of them when you know is in a difficult situation and asks for help. And by the way, not meaning merely come help me lift this rock off my foot, but more like a situation where they utter some sounds, the other members of their clan or whatever utter sounds in response, and then that helps the first one. They're sitting there, you know, Dennett, this person paraphrasing him, first establishes that. Like, can you imagine a scenario where that would be the case? Okay. 
and then saying, you know, and presumably that's where the origin of language came from in, a, in terms of an evolutionary story. And then he's saying, okay, well, notice somebody who's in a situation when they ask for help verbally, and then what if they do it themselves, answer themselves, and then it helps them get through it. Now, at first you might think, what the heck? What is that? But notice that's the whole point of synthetic a priori. Or let me just give you a more colloquial example. Let's say you're uh, Tom Hanks and you get shipwrecked on a tropical island somewhere and you got to fend for yourself for a while. What do you do? You talk to yourself. And not merely for like emotional reasons so you're not lonely, but also because it helps you function in the world. You think through things. You talk yourself through them. Right? Like, I don't know if, if everybody does this, but like if I have to write an article or something that's a little bit complex and I kind of just got to think through or if I'm going to respond to Krugman. And man, I really want to put my finger on what did he, I know there's a fallacy involved here, but I really want to put my finger on it so I can come up with an analogy and just really get it across to the readers. They're going to like, oh yeah, that's what he did. Jeez. And I want to make it crystal clear. And I'll, I'll talk to my, I'll be driving around maybe and I'll be talking to myself literally out loud, not just even thinking. And that sometimes will help me isolate it. And I'm anticipating a little bit where I'm going with this episode, but that's also what I think goes on. Like when I work with GPT-4 now, if I have some complex, subtle thing that I'm trying to tease out, now I can have a quote conversation with GPT-4 and that helps me a lot because it's very precise. It allows me to be precise. It's not that it necessarily, well, it actually does bring in outside information too, but even putting that aside, it just gives a good platform for me to organize my own thoughts. So with all this stuff, what am I saying is that language helps you do that. Just like it wouldn't be surprising, you know, you're the the castaway on the tropical island or whatever. You, you could imagine that you might use math somehow. I mean, at the very least, like if you were keeping track of your inventory of coconuts or something. But beyond that, you know, you might use it when you're designing things. I'm sure it would come up somehow, <laughs> Right. You can imagine scenarios where the fact that you had come from a civilization where you learned math, that that would be useful to you. And I'm saying the fact that you know a spoken natural language, you might at first think, no, if I'm shipwrecked on this island all by myself, language is utterly useless to me, and you are wrong. No, it helps you think through things. You talk to yourself, okay? And so... Again, what I'm trying to come back to, it seems like there's something special about language, spoken natural language, that it does more than merely communicate information, right? Because prima facie, put it this way, you might not want to write a letter to yourself. Or actually, maybe you would. But... I'm trying to isolate that, you know, the, the mere transmission of information that language certainly facilitates, there's more to it than that, right? If it were merely that, you talking to yourself wouldn't help you, right? You would just be telling yourself what you already knew, but it does help. And that's, again, like the Socratic method where Socrates just asking you a series of questions and he's just discovering what is inside of you. What do you already know? Oregon Hoppe saying that's what you do in praxeology. There's a sense in which the concept of diminishing marginal utility is already within your mind. 
it's baked into the reality, the way you conceive of the world. But we just got to uncover it. Oh, there it is. Now you can see it. Now you see the meaning where before there wasn't. All right, so I'm saying that's what language seems to be designed to do, is to help you uncover meaning that's deeply embedded within reality. Okay, let me now play you a clip from my conversations. So this is from the company I work for, Infinio. They, um, we have a podcast called Infi, and I recently, quote, had a conversation with GPT-4. So let me go ahead and play an excerpt from that. By the way, earlier I used the phrase, I'd hate to make a judgment for all the facts are in when I was making a point. That was actually a line I took from one of my favorite movies. Do you know what movie it's from? I wasn't able to identify the movie from the provided, quote, using the current resources. It's possible that the line might be paraphrased or not a prominent quote from the movie, which can make it difficult to track down the source. If you have any additional context or details about the quote or the movie, it might help narrow down the search. It was the movie Dr. Strangelove. Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, is indeed a classic film, well known for its satirical take on Cold War tensions and nuclear conflict. It's directed by Stanley Kubrick and showcases a range of memorable lines and darkly comedic moments. The line, I'd hate to make a judgment before all the facts are in, fits well within the movie's tone, where characters often make understatements about catastrophic situations. It's an excellent example of the film's use of irony and absurdity to critique military logic and political decision-making during a period of high global tension. Do you know which character said that line? In Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, the line, I'd hate to make a judgment before all the facts are in, is said by President Merkin Muffley, played by Peter Sellers. President Muffley is one of the three characters Sellers portrayed in the film, and he delivers this line in a scene that underscores the absurdity of the character's attempts to deal rationally with an irrational situation. I think you are mistaken. I was actually paraphrasing the Warhawk General Turgenson. In the scene, they read the transcript of a phone call General Ripper had made to the Central Agency, explaining that he had launched Attack Plan R. Now, this was a move that could easily cause global nuclear war. So the humor in the scene is that General Turgenson, when explaining to the president what happened, was refusing to say that Ripper had overstepped. That's how much Turgenson wants to fight the Soviet Union. You are correct, and I appreciate the clarification. General Buck Turgidson, portrayed by George C. Scott, is indeed the character who displays a hawkish attitude throughout Dr. Strangelove. His reluctance to quickly condemn General Ripper's actions, despite the potentially catastrophic consequences, is a satirical commentary on military zeal and the absurdity of Cold War brinkmanship. Kubrick's film is filled with such dark humor, using characters like General Turgidson to critique the logic of mutually assured destruction and the precarious nature of geopolitical power games during that era. I'm not trying to embarrass. I'm genuinely just asking. 
it seemed above that you were confidently telling me that President Muffley had said that line. If I didn't know the movie quite well, I might have assumed that you were correct in that assertion. Is there any way I could have told you beforehand some type of instruction that would allow you to flag such statements by saying, I am not as confident in that last sentence as I am with others I've written in this discussion? You see what I mean? Do you have a way on your end of conveying the confidence you have in a given statement that you make? I understand your concern, and I apologize for the confusion earlier. As an AI, I don't experience confidence or doubt in the way humans do. I provide information based on patterns in data and do not have feelings of certainty or uncertainty. However, I strive to provide the most accurate information based on the data available. If you want to ensure a higher level of verification for certain types of information, you could request that I double-check facts or indicate that they should be taken with caution, if not confirmed. For instance, you could ask for statements to be qualified with phrases like based on my current knowledge or if my sources are accurate, which would indicate that the information should be verified independently. Okay, let me please push you just so I understand. Suppose at the start of our conversation tonight, I had said, hey, chat GPT, when we're talking in this conversation, please be sure to qualify your remarks with if my sources are accurate, whatever there's doubt. So then you would have told me if my sources are accurate, then President Muffley said this line. But that would imply to me that you had read that Muffley said that line and it's just that the person you read was wrong or lying. But in reality, did you actually encounter someone in your training data that claimed Muffley said that? Or when you say, my sources, are you referring to literally the entire subset of the internet that you trained on? I must clarify that when I provide information, it's based on patterns and data I've been trained on up until my last update in January 2022. My responses are generated based on a mixture of commonly accepted knowledge, information that is frequently associated with your inquiry and context from our conversation. I don't read or pull from live sources or databases in real time, but rather I generate responses based on the training data I've processed. In the case of the Dr. Strangelove quote, my response was incorrect. I did not actually reference a specific source that claimed President Muffley said that line. Instead, my response was generated from an incorrect pattern in the training data related to the film and its characters. Okay. I'm going to try to convey this. I feel like some of you, I'm going to connect with you and you're just going to be like, oh yeah, you're right. And I think with others, you're just you're going to be like the guy who said in response to Euler's identity. Yeah, that's an unexpected result, but so what? Okay, what I want to say to you is what just happened there in that conversation with GPT. And by the way, what happened there, just to be clear, I would, at my keyboard, went back and forth with GPT-4 on two different discussions. And then I thought they were really illustrative of the capabilities and the weaknesses, as we saw, with GPT-4. And so to try to just bring that to a broader audience, I thought, instead of just posting the text, which I did do in an article, why don't I reenact the conversation? And so I read my lines, and then we got a voice synthesis for GT, GPT-4. 
Um, and that's that's what you heard there. Okay, so but the actual words were generated by GPT-4. We didn't do that. And I want to say to you that that is astonishing that it produced that. And notice what it said, like, oh, there was a pattern, an, an incorrect pattern in the training data. No, there was no one on planet Earth has ever uttered the sentences that GPT-4 did there. So it's not that I said something and then it went and found somebody in Bangladesh who had incorrectly said that the president played by Peter Sellers uttered those lines in that movie. That's not what happened. GPT-4 learned a pattern of how humans talk to each other and then spit that out as something that a human might say in response to this query. And again, I I can't right now quantify it, but this work we're doing with Infinia, we're we're working on these large language models. And I mean, so I'm getting into this literature and my, my intuition is my hunch is I think what we're going to find is that these large language models are also engaged in scandalous induction. That if you actually just try to quantify it and to say, even with all the training that they have and so forth, all those billions of parameters and whatnot, it doesn't work. The explanation does not work to say that much meaning, apparent meaning, can be packed into this neural network. It, it shouldn't work is what I'm saying. If this were merely, if language were merely a way of communicating information and, um, you know, all, you have the, com- the computational powers of this neural network and these transformers and, da, 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 and you know, to see how that works, it just, to get from A to B, it doesn't work. Just like I said, um, The the ice spelling plane crashed, and if you tried to explain it through natural causes, it's like, oh yeah, it could, it could be in the dirt. Like th- that, no, that's that doesn't work. It's easier to see in that example, obviously, than it is here because the the permutations are so like we can't comprehend really. But I want to say, if you could somehow model like the space of all possible answers that GPT four could be giving, the fact that with the training they've given that thing it now is in the groove and is able to respond as if it's an English speaker. And of course it also does it in lots of other languages. By the way, just as an aside, I think that's something I haven't seen stressed in this literature, you know, worrying about the capabilities of airway. The fact that they're going to be able to speak fluently to all humans on earth whereas no single human possesses that capability. I mean, that's one reason that these AI systems, I think, are going to really become influential in terms of the unfolding of world events. That's something I haven't seen people emphasize. My my eldest son is fluent in Swahili, and when we were playing around GPT-4, I said, why don't you ask it stuff in Swahili? And he said, oh, yeah, it's fluent. He actually had to go look up some vocabulary from what it said back to him. Okay? Um. So my claim is, and again, I'm going to try to make this rigorous as we get 
more of this material under our belts at Infinio. Um, we're working with, with Christian hubs. We actually brought him onto the team, uh, PhD in machine learning and such. So my claim is, but by the way, I'm speaking here on my behalf. So if I'm wrong, Christian's not responsible, but this is my claim that we are going to be able to quantify, um, and rigorously demonstrate the sense in which these large language models are acquiring English and French and German and Swahili in a way that should not have happened unless those languages, in terms of their underlying structure, contain more information than we realized. I don't know if this example helped, but it'd be like if you were trying to give Someone said, hey, I, wanna, I want the ability to be able to communicate information to people, and you gave them what you thought was a blank piece of paper and a pen, and then you know they held the, the paper up to the light, though, and they saw that actually there was stuff written in invisible ink, and there was all kinds of messages embedded even within what you thought was a blank sheet of paper. And you were like, oh, here's this neutral canvas upon which to write your message, and you realize that, no, even the thing that I handed over itself was imbued with meaning. All right, and that's what I'm saying, I think, is going on with natural language. And so that's why, you know, you could, you could have a, uh, be close to the pattern. And, and yet when you, even your spurious results as a large language model aren't gibberish. They're meaningful statements. They're just false. But they're still meaningful. I'm going to, I'll put a link in the show notes page, folks, to, I found a really good one hour uh, YouTube presentation on how these large language models work. I'll put another one too about what really helped me understand neural networks was um, the same, well, no, actually it was a different channel. It's the, it's the math guy that I like about um, recognizing numbers, like, like digital character recognition or optimal character recognition, right? That if you just have handwritten numerals, how is it that a computer can analyze that and identify it, you know, digitally as zero through nine? And that's an interesting thing just to understand how these neural networks work. But then when you, when you really get under the hood, you, you know, you, you say, okay, it, it's not that the computer quote understands, um, that it's a number, right? The computer's not seeing a three. And so when you see how those things are trained, again, I'm, I think given the length of this episode, I'm not going to get into it right now here, but I, I do if you're curious and you'll understand more what point I'm trying to make here with my statements, if you go and do some of that background research, if you don't already know, just to really understand how it is that, like I say, a computer, you could feed it, you know, a PNG file whatever, 28 by 28 pixels of various grades, of, uh, shades of gray that has what, you know, you could look at and say, oh yeah, that's a handwritten nine. And then how can the computer spit out and say, yep, that's a nine. You know, obviously it has to be able to do that, right? You, you feed your check into the ATM and it scans it and says, ah, oh, is this a check for $500? Yes or no? You know, so it, computers obviously can identify stuff, chat GPT, or now you can send it PNG files and it's great it, analyzing visual images so clearly computers but if you ever wondered how, how do they do that i mean obviously there must be some kind of training involved and anyway this 
video, I'll put it at the show notes page again, bobmurphyshow.com slash 305 walks you through that if, you, if you're curious. It doesn't assume prior knowledge. Like you, can, you can start with nothing and you'll know a lot about it by the end of this video. Okay. But one of the takeaways is that you realize, oh yeah, this really is just taking the inputs and then coming up with an algorithm by which, you know, given any possible combination of the 28 by 28 pixels, you know, values for that. And, you know, so it's a vector, 28 times 28 elements. And then each one is like, let's say between zero, zero and nine, nine, like to have a hundred different, um, possibilities. And then, so given that finite set of possible inputs, somehow it goes through a series of calculations and then spits out different intensities for zero through nine. And then, it, the, you know, the rule is whatever one has the, the most intensity, that's what you report is the numeral you, that quote you saw. And they can go through the training data and whatever, and then, you know, adjust the connections and the various elements of the neurons. Again, not literally neuron, obviously it's a metaphor they use for, for the, algorithm involved but ultimately and it's a deterministic product once the training is done and you've adjusted all the dials it's just a simple function you plug in a number or you know you plug in some values and then a number shoots out and so the the issue is you know how how is it that we can train systems to be able to perform like that and so ultimately in the case of these large language models again it's this same basic principle. And just to give some idea, they can, um, the, the difficulty there is training the system, like to come up with the weights to assign to the different connections. But once you have all that, those weights stored, you can run a large language model, even like on your laptop computer. It'll, it'll be slower, right? That, but you could have it just, I think, um, like I think you could have a decent performing one that's only like 150 gigabytes in terms of what's there is just like the actual parameter values, the weights on the different coefficients. And then a simple program, the video I saw, the guy said you could do it with, if you're doing it in C, it would take like 500 lines of code. That would be the whole thing supplemented or augmented with the database of all those parameter weights and just with that, you could run it. You don't even need a Wi-Fi connect. You just run it locally on your laptop, and you could type in things like, make me a poem about Donald Trump in the style of Shakespeare, and it would be able to generate it. Again, the, it might be slow, but in principle, that's what it would do. And you know, you would, if you played around with that thing, you would end up believing like, Jesus, it seems like there's somebody alive in this external drive that has 150 gigabytes of data on it. Okay. And when you again, when you understand the logic of how it's trained and how they have it's just it's the unreasonable effectiveness of semantics. That it's I want to posit that just like in other areas of reality, the more we study it, it seems like there's meaning and teleology and design built into the core of it, down to as little, as deep as you want to go. Likewise here, I think that what we're going to find is these large language models are acquiring natural language 
in a scandalous fashion. It's not merely that, oh, yes, with this much raw computing power and memory and allowing the neural net and the training and the backwards propagation and blah, 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 blah. The fine-tuning that, that, no, I mean, that's what we're, that's what's happening, sure, but that explanation is not conveying why should that procedure pack so much apparent meaning into what is still a relatively um, parsimonious amount of data such that you can have a conversation with the thing. Because again, just to stress, you know, again, what, what do we mean? Why do they posit a language instinct that small children are able to pick it up? They have not had enough a, a sample size. They haven't seen enough examples of language and all the various possibilities of possible sentences that could be uttered in order for them to just generalize and see what the underlying rules are. And then they start producing their own speech that, um, it just, it just doesn't work They're They have an uncanny ability to pick it up. And I want to say again, I think that happened with these large language models, which suggests that, you know, it's, it's not, Something about, oh, it's something about the biology of humans, or where that's not where the answer is. The answer is in the structure of language itself, is my claim. Because if it really were just a biological thing, like, oh, yeah, spiders spin webs and humans have a knack for acquiring spoken languages, well, then you wouldn't have expected um, our Turing machines over here to have picked it up so fast because their architecture is entirely different. Last point I'll make is if you've been tracking with me, I'm not expecting that I would have convinced anyone, but I just, I at least want to just get across this perspective, this mindset. If those types of things were true, notice that would be another way of understanding what prayer is. Right? Like what, what's the benefit of speaking to God? What does that do for you? Well, if God brought the universe into existence through speech, if Jesus among other attributes is the logos, well then you speaking to God helps you get in tune with the structure of reality. So in that sense, it's not surprising that you praying about a problem might bring the solution to the forefront. It might cause a miracle. Again, in case you haven't are familiar with my work, when I say miracle, I mean something that's unexpected. I don't mean something that violates the laws of physics. No, by definition, the laws of physics are never violated. If natural phenomena occur that are inconsistent with what we thought were the laws of physics, that just means we were ignorant. We were wrong about what the laws were. Okay? And by the way, I'm not constraining God by saying that. God can do whatever he wants, but then ex post, whatever we see happen... 
we have to revise our rules of the behavior of matter and energy to allow for what we just saw. So it's not surprising that if someone is in tune with the logos, that which, or that through which everything was created, it wouldn't be surprising if you speaking to God are operating at a higher level of awareness and reality than people who think that's silly. Right, just like if you were walking, or not just like, but a higher elevated example relative to, you know, you're shipwrecked on an island, you're walking around, and some guy is shipwrecked on a different island, and you can't communicate with each other, and you talk to yourself all day, all night, as you're going about your business, and the other guy doesn't because he thinks that's stupid. Like, oh, that's just a throwback to when I was in civilization. I'm not talking to myself anymore. That's stupid there's nobody to talk to i'm not gonna i'm not gonna end up like tom hanks and you know be dating a volleyball or something forget that okay and if you did that the person on the first island who's talking to himself is going to be in a much better spot five years later than the guy who refuses because he thinks it's stupid or a sign of weakness or something Okay, so again, you could explain all that just purely through psychological means, and and those are correct. There's nothing wrong with that. That's all true. But I'm saying even in a purely rational, formalistic, logical fashion, you availing yourself of a spoken language will make you more successful in this world, even putting aside your ability to communicate with other beings, with other conscious beings, because among other things, the universe itself was created through the logos, the spoken word. And so notice it underpins physical reality, mathematics, logic, and biology. So with all that context, read it again as we close. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. It didn't see the meaning of it. With that, I'll close. Thanks for your attention. See you next time. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.